Good morning, everyone. Got your Christmas shopping done? Yeah? Good? Good. Colin, got it done? Oh, yeah, good. Thank goodness for Amazon, right? Oh, don't need that. <clears throat> um, well, this morning we're going to finish up our series looking at what we've affectionately called uh, God's Symphony of Redemption. And we've been kind of playing on this idea that, that this was a musical masterpiece written from before the world began. And we started all the way back in Genesis. You'll remember that week one when Brian began our series. And we looked at how that problem of sin had been exposed there in the garden. And yet at the same time, the plan of redemption was re- revealed. That God had spoken about the promise of, of a Messiah who would restore what sin had destroyed. He would defeat both Satan and the power of sin's control. But in this first movement of God's symphony, we didn't know who this was and how it would be accomplished. And so in that second movement of God's symphony, we begin to see some of those details unfold. The Old Testament prophets slowly revealed details, each with increasing clarity. In fact, there are over 400, now wrap your mind around that, over 400 prophetic details that point to the promised Messiah. And last week, we just looked at a few of those key promises. We looked at how this Messiah would be born in the lineage of humanity, from the seed of a woman, how he would come through the nation of Israel, through the tribe of Judah as a descendant of David that he would be born of a virgin in the city of Bethlehem. And we know that all of these things were fulfilled just as the scriptures foretold. It is increasingly clear as we work our way through the symphony of redemption that God has a plan and that he keeps his promises. And as we learned last week, his timing is absolutely perfect. Here we see how every detail of God's plan of redemption is divinely ordained. Each of them fulfilled just as God promised they would be. He is the one, Jesus, pointing to that promise. He is the one that that promise ultimately is made to and fulfilled by. We learn in John chapter 3, 17 that God did not send his son into the world to judge the world but that the world might be saved through him. And all of this brings us to this fourth and final movement of God's symphony of redemption, the the finale, if you will. Here we see the complete consummation of the glory of God's redemption, the moment when all the promises of God are fully and eternally fulfilled. It's kind of like we just sang uh, in this last song when, when it says that, All of heaven held its breath, looking to observe the the manifold wisdom of God. This is the finale. This is the moment that we've been waiting for, when everything, as the scripture tells us, is brought together, summed up in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the one who is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do come before you humbly. Uh, We come before you grateful um, because we are expectant 
that your word is alive and well, that it speaks into the very depths of our heart. It has the power to transform our lives. Father, this is word breathed out by you with a divine purpose that is intended for us this very day, in this very moment, to accomplish what you intend for every single person in the room. So, Father, we just are expectant of that truth, and we look to see how you might speak into our lives. And we do this because of our faith and trust in our Savior, Jesus Christ. May we look expectantly for all that you have to say. We pray this in your name. Amen. Right, if you would, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I felt like this was a great passage to bring us to the finale of of God's symphony of redemption. So I'd love for you to to read along with me, if you will, in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 7. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 says, In him, speaking of Jesus, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses or our sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. We're all familiar with these words, but I want us to unpack them to see all the goodness that God has in store for us. Last week, we looked at the words of Jesus, if you'll remember, when he said very clearly as his ministry began, he says, the time is fulfilled, that the kingdom is at hand. And then he goes on and says, repent and believe in the gospel. He wants us to know that that all of those Old Testament promises were ultimately and completely Pointing to him. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, he says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. He is the promised Messiah, divinely ordained to bring redemption to the world. Verse 7 says, In him we have redemption. And that word redemption is really important for us to understand. It's the, the idea of a ransom. A ransom that's paid in order to release someone from captivity. A a price in order to to set someone free. Let me illustrate it to you this way. It's similar to a boy who had a a boat that he built. looked much like this. One of Columbus's first ships. I think this was the Nina. And he built this with intricate detail out of balsa wood. And he constructed the sails. And it was a beautiful masterpiece. And he loved to play with it. He would go to the shores of Lake Michigan, and he'd put the boat in the water, it flowed, and he would just play with that day after day until one day. A gust of wind unexpectedly came, caught the sails, and quickly out of the boy's grasp. And before he knew it, it went and drifted along the seas until it drifted out of sight. And every day he would come back to that same shoreline, hoping that the boat that he had built would drift back. But it never did. Until one day he was walking through the city streets and he sees that boat in the storefront window there on the main street. So he walks into the store and explains to the owner that he had built that boat. But the owner told him, no, there was a fisherman who sold me that boat at a good price. And so if you want it, you're going to have to pay for it. He didn't have the money at the time. And so he had to go out and do what he could to earn the money to be able to walk back into that store and thankfully purchased that boat as he held it in his hands, inspecting every detail just to ensure that it's exactly like he remembered it. He looked at it and he said, 
you are twice mine now. Because I made you and because I bought you. That, my friends, is redemption. And it's exactly what Jesus has done for us because we are twice his. He made us and he bought us. Setting us free from sin so that we could belong to him. But like that boy, we also know that there was a price that Jesus had to pay. In our passage, it goes on and it says that we have redemption through his blood. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 reminds us, You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood. As of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the the blood of Jesus Christ. We need to understand that that price, that, that ransom that was paid was done so through Christ's blood. Which is why Jesus can say, just like the boy, you're twice mine now. Because I made you. He made you in the image of God. And he bought you with the the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We have been redeemed. Set free from slavery to sin. As Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 6 verse 14. For sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under law, but you're under grace. That's why that passage that we're looking at in Ephesians says that that we have the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And it goes on to even develop that further. It says a grace has been lavished on you. And, And I don't want us to miss the importance of what Paul is saying here. Because words matter, even prepositions. Right? In our passage, it didn't say that we have forgiveness from God's grace. This is in accordance with. Now, that's significant because when we think of something that's from a supply, it's a, it, it's a, it gives the idea that there's a limited supply. Like when you hear an advertisement on TV and it says, while supplies last, right? Well, if it's from his grace, it seems as if the more he gives, then the less he has, which is not the case at all. God has an unlimited, infinite supply of grace. And our forgiveness, this scripture says, is in accordance with that unlimited supply. The reasons this is important is because you have a forgiveness that, like his grace, knows no end. We learned in Hebrews chapter 10 uh, verse 12 just this past fall that we that he having offered one sacrifice for sins there it is for all time sat down at the right hand of God in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace which he has lavished upon us. Now, if that wasn't already good enough, look at what he goes on to say there in the middle of verse 8. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. Now, when the word wisdom or mystery is used in the Bible, 
It's often used to describe a divine truth that is so infinitely wonderful that we simply cannot wrap our finite minds around it to fully comprehend it. But what we learn here is is knowing that fact, that God graciously reveals that mystery to us. It says that he made it known to us. He explained it so that we could understand it. It's kind of like when you sit down with someone and you're having a cup of coffee and you, you might tell them, tell me what's on your heart. But why do you say that? You say that because you don't have the ability in and of yourself to know what that is, right? They have to reveal that to you. In the very same way, what God is saying here, in essence, is, listen to me. I want you to know what's on my heart. In and of ourselves, we don't have the ability, the insight, the wisdom, the knowledge to know the very heart and mind of God. But in his grace and mercy towards us, he says, that's okay because I'm going to tell you. I want you to know what's on my heart for you. Some translations say, in accordance to his good pleasure. It's the same idea because what it's telling us is is that God delights to reveal the details of his plan. It's not some secret that he's begrudgingly withholding from us. It's a truth he can't wait to tell us at just the right time. Reminds me of our rehearsal dinner. Terry and I uh, were excited. We were preparing for our wedding day the next day. But like a lot of young couples, there was a lot of uncertainties, right? Terry would be graduating. We got married in March. She would be graduating in the end of that semester. So she was interviewing for jobs as a, as a teacher. Uh, I had applied for physical therapy school for the second time because I didn't get in the first time, and I didn't know whether I would make it in this time. And in fact, there was this thought in the back of my mind, if this doesn't work, what am I going to do? I don't have a plan B. I would have to redirect to a whole different career path, and I had no idea where to begin that process. But unbeknownst to me, my dad had information about my admission that I wasn't aware of. And so the time came at our rehearsal dinner where he stood up to give his toast and he gave us his blessing. He affirmed his support and love for Terry and I in marriage. And then, out of nowhere, he made the announcement that I'd been admitted into PT school. And I want to tell you something. And I know this because I know my dad. He could not wait to give us the good news. I want you to hear that because I believe our Heavenly Father cannot wait to give us the good news. Like we see in Jeremiah 29, 11, this is the heart of your father when he looks at you and he says, for I know my plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. It's God's deepest pleasure to reveal his plan and purpose for your life. You matter to him. As Paul clarifies in our passage that this purpose was made possible because of Jesus Christ. He says there in verse 9, He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him, in Jesus. God's plan of redemption had Only one possible solution. Jesus Christ, our promised Messiah. 
That's why Acts chapter 4, verse 12 says, There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given unto men by which we can be saved. Now let's continue. Look at verse 10. I'm going to back up to verse 9 so it all fits together in one sentence. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him. Verse 10, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. It says there at the beginning of verse 10, with a view to administration to the fullness of times. That should sound familiar, right? That phrase, the fullness of time. Because last week we looked at a passage that used the exact same phrase. You remember that? Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, it says this. Let me remind you. But here's the phrase, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Okay, so same phrase being used, but I want to reiterate the way that this one in our passage is being being communicated. Look at how it is qualified there in verse 10. With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of time. It's a little bit of a confusing phrase. The NIV, I think, simplifies it when it says, when the times have reached their fulfillment. So here's the key. What we see in Galatians, in the fullness of time, is actually looking back in history to the time of Christ's first coming, what we're about to celebrate here in a few days. But when we look at that same phrase being used in Ephesians, it's actually looking forward. It's in the view of something yet future. Another key moment in history divinely ordained by God. Galatians is looking back to his first coming. Ephesians is looking forward to his second coming. When everything, as it says, in both heaven and on earth will be brought to order under Jesus Christ. Now, one of the reasons we know this is true, because if you look around us in our world today, it doesn't look like there's a lot of order, does it? Sin is continuing to wreak havoc. Corruption and immorality seem to be going from bad to worse. Increasingly, we are calling what is evil good. And what is good, evil. In fact, this past week, the so-called Respect for Marriage Act was signed into law. But in reality, that law could not be more disrespectful to God's original design as marriage ordained between one man and one woman for a lifetime. And don't make this a political issue because our society at large, regardless of your political alliance, sees this as progress. It looks at our past as as oppressive. And yet, we also know at the same time that Jesus said, His kingdom has come. So, So which one is it? As we look around in the world, we can see that the God's plan is not yet complete. The biblical scholars will often describe this as a, a place in between the already and the not yet. Because Jesus made it clear, his kingdom has come. That's the already. But the not yet is it has not yet reached its complete fulfillment as he intends. So we should look back 
to the coming of Christ and all that he accomplished. Knowing as we learn in Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 that we have been rescued from the domain of darkness. And that we've been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have, there's the word again, redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. We've been set free from the power of sin's control. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are ministers of reconciliation. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 says, our citizenship is in heaven. And that we eagerly await for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. When we read that passage in verse 10 of Ephesians, we are looking forward to that eager anticipation of Christ's return. The not yet part of God's design. The day when Christ returned and, and that disorder, disorder of sin is finally, completely, and eternally destroyed. The day when Jesus ushers in the universal reconciliation of all creation. And just know, he doesn't improve things that are broken. He tells us, he says, I make all things new. In fact, I want you to picture this in your mind, okay? So I'm going to read a passage, John's vision in Revelation chapter 21, one that you're familiar with, but I want you to picture it in your mind. So if you will, close your eyes, and I want you to listen carefully, and I want you to picture what this is like as John describes it in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Think about this. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne. Think about this. Picture it in your mind. Listen to who's talking. He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. People, this is the finale. <laughs> This is the final movement in God's symphony of redemption, a universal reconciliation, a cosmic restoration, a day when creation exists under the righteous rule of Jesus Christ, the day when Jesus says, I'm done. And the redemption of God is complete. So with that in mind, I want to encourage you to, to think through some things as you prepare your hearts for what we'll celebrate a week from today on Christmas. And I want to think about it in light of what we've talked about this morning. So the first thing I want to encourage you to do is to look back. Look back. 
spend some time reflecting on the significance of the incarnation, the moment when Jesus fulfilled the promise of God as the Messiah who came as a sacrifice for our sins, the, the one in whom the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Maybe take some time. I don't know if you do this. Probably many of you do this as a family. Just sit down and read Luke's account of the birth of Jesus Christ. And, and when you hear phrases like what we've talked about the last few weeks, pause and reflect on them a little bit. What's the significance when it says that he's a descendant of David? Why is that important? Or, or when he goes on and qualifies the fact that the kingdom will have no end. Or how about when he tells Mary and reminds her, Nothing is impossible with God. And then ask yourself, why would that be important for me? Where I am in my life right now. Is that still true? Look back and be thankful for God's grace. Be thankful for the hope of the resurrection. Be humbled by Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. And remember, don't forget this. Jesus came. He was born in order to die. So that we might have eternal life with him. So look back. But also look around. Look into the eyes of those you love. Even think about how you might be an encouragement to those who might be difficult to love. Think about how you might re-gift the gift of grace that has been given to you. To forgive as you've been forgiven. To love is you've been loved. As much as you can, be fully present with the people that you're with. And I'll admit to you, this is really hard for me. I'm a to-do list guy. There's got to be something that I need to get done. I need to be productive to show something for the work that I'm doing. And, 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 and this is something that I can, it's hard for me sometimes to be still and to be present with the people that I'm with. But boy, if there's ever a time to do that, when we come together as a family for Christmas, that's, what it need, that's when it needs to be there, right? So put down your phones. Put a basket at the front door, okay? Stick your phone in the basket. Put down your phones and pull out some board games. Look at each other eye to eye. Spend time with one another. Be with the people that you're with. Maybe take some time and pull out family albums. Anybody still have those tucked away somewhere in a cabinet somewhere, right? Those old, remember pictures? We took them and they, yeah? Yeah, it, they, it exists. I'm not lying. But pull them out. When we were at Terry's mom over Thanksgiving, we had, what was that, a little 8 millimeter film with a little 8 millimeter projector, no sound, black and white. It was so fun to, to remember and to see family and, and to see people that have gone to be with the Lord. And just to laugh and remember stories, we need to do that. Be with the people you're with. Look around. And then look forward. Try to imagine the day of Christ's return. Think about the reunion of all of God's people. That cosmic restoration, that universal reconciliation, the new heavens, the new earth, these glorified bodies. We were talking, Hud and I were talking this morning, there's not a day that goes by that we don't hurt somewhere and it's rarely the same place every day. Man, I can't wait to get my glorified body when all that stuff goes away. 
He didn't put it in there. He says no more sorrow. I'm pretty sure there's no more joint or arthritis or any of that other thing. Remember, God has a plan that he keeps his promises, that his timing is perfect. He brings restoration. He makes all things new. And be reminded, that begins the moment you believe, and it is made complete the day he returns. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the beauty of your symphony of redemption, beginning all the way back in Genesis. When you knew, before the world began, before you created us in your image, you knew that we would sin against you, we would rebel against what you have set before us, even though it was designed for our ultimate good. And in knowing how we would step away, you made a plan for how you would come near how you would send Jesus, the promised Messiah, to be the Redeemer that we so desperately need, rescuing us from the penalty of our sin, the slavery of sin's control, setting us free to worship and follow you. Father, I pray that as we remember what you've accomplished, that we would also take the time to realize what is yet in store. That you, who began a good work in us, is faithful to complete it. So even now, day by day, you are continuing that redemptive work in every single person's life who has put their faith and trust in you. And that one day we can look forward, eagerly anticipating your return. Knowing that in that day, you will make all things new. The redemption will be complete, eternally complete. As we spend all of that time in your presence with God's people to the praise and glory of your name. We eagerly await that time. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen to that. Hey, let me give you a little history. So a number of years ago when we had Christmas fall on a Sunday like we will this next week, we looked around. There were several churches that were canceling services that day. People wanted to be with their family, and we kind of thought in our mind, that made sense. So we didn't have church that year. We quickly learned from a number of people in our church congregation that this was their family Christmas. And we took it away. And as elders, we said, we will never do that again. So we're going to be here next Sunday. It's our family gathering. It's how we want to spend a part of Christmas. And if you have family, we want you to bring them with you. We want them to know that when they are part of your family, they are part of this family family of God. And so I hope, if you're able, that you'll come gather with us next week as we celebrate on the day that we recognize our Savior and His birth for the purpose of our redemption. And now you have a little bit of history of why we do that, right? Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for the privilege to be a part of this church family. That's what it is. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are adopted sons and daughters We are twice yours. You made us and you bought us. So what else would we want to do but to gather with that family, to celebrate your goodness, to rejoice in our redemption, to exalt our Savior. 
And Father, may we be able to do that even as we go through this week. Because I know that there are sometimes family dynamics are really good and sometimes they're really hard. But in either case, I pray that those who belong to you may demonstrate to others the grace that they have been given. They would forgive as they have been forgiven. That they would love as they've been loved. And that they would allow the incarnation of Christ, that evidence of his goodness, to just flood into their time together as a family. And when we gather together as a church, we would do the same. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Have a great day.